Welcome to Wine for Normal People, the podcast for people who like wine, but not the snobbery that goes with it. I'm your host, Elizabeth Schneider, author of the Wine for Normal People book and certified wine dork. And I'm MC Ice, just a wine-loving normal person. This show is sponsored by Wine Access. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal and join the wine club for that first shipment next year. It's going to be awesome. Also, don't forget, Wine Access offers gift cards for the wine lover in your life. Go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP. Check out my page. Listen in the middle of the show for more details. In this show, I have a very special guest who's going to break down a topic many of you have asked about, wine, fire, and the effect of smoke in the vineyard. Professor Thomas Collins, yes, his name is Tom Collins. No, I'm not going to make a joke about it to him, but for those of you who like the beverage, that is his name. He is the foremost authority in the U.S. on smoke in the vineyards. Dr. Collins has been an assistant professor of grape and wine chemistry in the viticulture and enology program at Washington State University since 2015. He manages a research program in grape, wine and spirits, aroma and flavor chemistry, and teaches courses in grape and wine chemistry and winery operations. He's had a long career in the wine business. But in the show, he's really modest and doesn't tell you everything, so I will in this intro. Dr. Collins attended Cornell University in New York, studying Russian language and literature, which he does mention in the show. While in the Finger Lakes, he became interested in wine, spent four years in the U.S. Navy, worked for five years for Constellation in New York State, worked as an assistant winemaker for a small winery in Lodi, as an R&D manager for Treasury Wine Estates, which is based in Australia with ownership of many California wineries, which will become important as we discuss this. He received his PhD in agricultural and environmental chemistry from UC Davis in 2012. And shortly after, he left the corporate side to become the director of research for the Food Safety and Measurement Facility at UC Davis. He was the president of the prestigious American Society for Enology and Viticulture from 2021 to 2022 and was chosen as Wine Enthusiast Magazine's Innovator of the Year in 2022 for his research on grape smoke exposure mitigation. The guy is impressive. But the thing we're talking to him about is essential to the future of the wine industry in the U.S. and beyond. Dr. Collins is part of a team of the West Coast of the United States, university professors at Washington State University, Oregon State University, University of California, Davis, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And they received a $7.6 million grant to study the impact of smoke exposure on grapes. Dr. Collins is an excellent teacher. He breaks down all the most important things we should know about smoke impact on grapes and the exciting developments to predict, monitor, and fix issues with smoke taint. As one of the vanguard in studying this, Dr. Collins knows the issues and factors. And after this show, you're going to be well-versed on the concerns about fire and the developments in fixes for the devastating effects. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed it, and I have a feeling that you will. So here's the show. Tom, thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited. We finally made this work. It took us a while. Thank you for the invite. I'm glad to be here. I think this is going to be a lot of fun today. Oh, it absolutely is going to be. So tell us about your background and how you got into wine and then how you got into studying fire and its effects on wine. So I have a bachelor's degree in Russian language and Soviet studies from Cornell University. So kind of the typical 
route of entry into the wine industry. Hold on. Do- <laughs> hold, hold on a second. So what's so crazy about that is I studied international politics during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And for the last 20 years, my degree has meant nothing. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, it's relevant again. Aren't you so happy about that? About uh, your yeah. own degree having great <laughs> relevance again? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, it I it was I studied I was at Cornell from 1980 to 1984, which if you're a Soviet studies major is probably some of the most exciting times in recent history for Russian and Soviet history. That was when Brezhnev passed away and he went through the succession of Soviet leaders. You know, it was an exciting time to do that. I was there on a Navy ROTC scholarship and that was one of the majors the Navy would allow me to do. You know, it was interesting. But as you suggest, for much of the last 30 plus years, not that relevant. Hey, look, you got a backup <laughs> career now, though. I yes, mean, like, exactly. <laughs> who knew? You probably knew. You probably saw this coming. So, all right. So <laughs> then how did you get into wine from there? That's not a logical step. You're correct. Sure. But as you're aware, the Finger Lakes are a center of wine production in New York State. One of the things we did as students at Cornell was go and visit the wineries and enjoy tasting wines and the beautiful scenery. And that's where my introduction to wine took place. Was the wine good then? There were good wines. There were good Rieslings, some good Chardonnays, and a whole lot of not so good to decent wines made from white hybrids, especially. It was interesting enough and the wines were good enough to keep us coming back. So, and yeah. that's where that's where I first picked up the love of working in wine. So then how'd you parlay that into your career? I finished at Cornell, I had four years plus in the Navy from my responsibility for the scholarship that I had with them. And when I got out of the Navy, I moved to California and went to school at UC Davis to get a degree in viticulture and analogy with the goal of going back to the Finger Lakes to be a winemaker. That did not happen, though. What happened? Well, <laughs> I, actually, I actually did go back to the Finger Lakes and worked in, I worked in the industry there for five years, uh, mostly doing work on the vineyard side. I worked for Canandaigua Wine Company, which is now Constellation. Actually, that transition took place while I worked for them. So I managed their vineyards in the Finger Lakes and worked with their grape growers in the Finger Lakes and in Pennsylvania, doing grower relations, buying fruit from all these growers and managing the contracts that we had with all of those growers. That was my first professional job in the wine industry was working in the Finger Lakes for Constellation, or Canandaigua and then Constellation. How did that turn into becoming like one of the foremost experts on fire? So that came a few years after that. I had been at Davis for a number of years as a student before I went to New York to work in the industry there. Then I went back to California, went back to actually finish a PhD I'd started previously. So while I was a student at Davis getting my PhD, I also worked for a big wine company in the Napa Valley. So I was managing research and development for that winery at the same time I was going to school. And this was 2008, 2009. Well, 2008 was the first real experience in California with a major smoke exposure event. So there was a storm front that came through at the end of June of 2008 that started about 2000 fires in Northern California. And some of those fires lingered for weeks And it resulted in a big chunk of Northern California being inundated with smoke for the better part of a week. And that was really the industry's first experience with that kind of exposure and worked at the time for a company that was owned in Australia. I worked for Treasury. It's actually still 
Behringer Glass at the time. Yeah. We had a team in Australia that had dealt with wildfires there prior to the event in California. It had actually been an issue in Australia for several years prior to that. And so they gave us some advice on things to look for, things to do, things to try. And we built a research program trying to get some understanding of how to how to manage the vineyards that had been affected and to do things, what we could do with the wines that had been affected to try to make them usable again. That was really my first experience was running an R&D program in the industry. Very quick and kind of dirty trials to really understand what we're up against. And it's a huge advantage. I have tried to emphasize this before, but the Australians are so research-oriented. They're so science-oriented. And they are never satisfied with just sitting on a problem. They're always Mm going to keep going into it. And I think that the Australian Wine Research Institute is a wonder. They do such a great job of sharing information. They put it out for public consumption. I have learned so much just from their stuff. Mm -hmm. So being in a company that is based there must have been just a huge advantage because immediately when it happened, they said, oh, look, we've got all of this. Whereas your previous company, I don't think Constellation didn't have those kinds of resources or anybody else, really. Yeah, You're really at a good advantage. Yeah, a huge, huge advantage. I mean, it's a a big, big benefit of Treasury. So can I ask, since that time, there are so many fires, and we'll get to your current job in a second, but let's just concentrate on that. Why, starting in 2008, and I remember I was in the industry then as well, all this fire, and then you get into the big one in, what was it, 2017 or 2018? It was terrifying for people because it was a colossal fire. So what's happening? Why are we seeing this? Is this climate change at work? There's definitely a climate change component. There's also, I think, some forestry management components. I hope I can say that without it becoming too political, but you know, I think you should be able to advocate for better forestry management without it being a big statement. Well, I don't think people even know that that is a big thing. Most people don't know. When you're saying forestry management, what exactly are you talking about? And then you can talk about why some people are opposed to it. Because I think it's important. Neither you nor I have any skin in this game. We're just trying to understand the issue. So we're just trying to explain the issue. So we neither of us are taking sides here, although we are saying that it's probably good to do forestry management because in that case, there are going to be fewer fires. So go ahead and explain what that is and why it's a political hot potato. One of the reasons that we not only have more fires, but when we have a fire, they're more intense, they burn hotter, they burn longer than previous fires, is just management of fuel in the understory in these forests. We have not done a lot of thinning of understory growth. Many of our forests have really big fuel loads in the lower parts of the forest structure, so closer to the ground level, and even trees that grow up towards the canopy. And what happens when you have a fire that has, or when you have a forest that has a high fuel load, instead of having a relatively cool fire that just burns along the forest floor, burns the needles and things that have fallen to the ground, maybe burns some of the bark on the outside of the tree, that's how the forest should be. There shouldn't be a lot of growth there, so that when you have a fire, it just clears things out, and it doesn't kill the trees, it just singes the bark. But if you have a lot of fuel, those fires get hotter, they burn much hotter, and you also start to see the fire go from the forest floor up into the canopy, up into the crowns of these trees, and when that happens, it kills the trees. And there's no coming back from that, or it's a much more difficult process for that forest to recover than from a normal 
the kinds of fires we used to have. And some of it is from fire suppression, our longstanding practice of trying to make put fires out as soon as as soon as they develop. And we have to do that in some places because people live in the forest. They live in areas that are forested. And so we have to do that in many cases. But if we're going to do that, then we really need to pay attention to thinning out the fuel so that you don't get the kind of hot, destructive fires that we've seen increasingly in recent years. And we've certainly seen the number of fires and their intensity increase. Four of the worst years in California history in terms of the total number of acreage burned have been since 2017. 2017, 2018, 2020. Those were some of the some of the worst years ever. Over a million acres burned just in California in each of those years. And in 2020, it was 4 million acres. Can you talk about why somebody might have a problem with forestry management? And this is a practice that's been done for a very long time, right? I mean, yeah. previously it had been because there was an understanding that that if you don't control it, you're going to have problems, right? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right. That there was a long term understanding that you need to manage the fuel load in the in the forest to keep these kinds of fires from getting too hot and too intense. And there needs to be a program that involves either thinning these forests out or doing regular controlled burns to keep that growth under control. And many places, that's how it's done. The genesis of the issue in Australia, the reason they really started to recognize smoke as an issue was from controlled burns. So the Australians do a more aggressive job of managing forests by doing controlled burns. And some of these controlled burns were happening in areas close to vineyards. And so they were getting smoke affecting their vineyards. But it wasn't from wildfires initially. It was from controlled burns to try and manage forest density. Ah, interesting. And so people are against the controlled burns and they're against thinning because they feel like nature should just do what it's supposed to do and we shouldn't do anything? Is that the argument? Well, I'm not sure that I'm close enough to what these arguments are. One of them is probably related to letting the forest do what it's supposed to do. There's always a budgetary issue because it costs money to thin forests. It costs money to do controlled burns. So that's, I mean, that's invariably going to be part of the story is it's it's expensive to manage forests. That in some cases is the primary issue. I think the other thing that sometimes plays a role, not always, is just coordination between different agencies that manage fighting fires. So we've seen instances where agencies that had the resources available to fight a fire weren't able to go onto it because it was federal land or it was state ah, land and okay. they were they were not federal, they were state or vice versa. So there were instances where a fire could have been controlled early on, but because that that sort of coordination is sometimes difficult, fires get out of hand before they can sort out who should be fighting it or before the right agency can actually get their resources in the right place. That it's, is so wrong. It's crazy. But what is the future of fires if we don't do any of this? I mean, it's just going to keep going, right? We're going to continue to see the steady advance in the numbers and intensity of the fires that we're facing. I think areas where they go in and do some of the thinning and maybe some of the controlled burns where that's still manageable will probably be in better shape. But, you know, in the absence of some kind of advancement like that, I think we're going to continue to see more fires. 
and they're going to be hotter fires and more destructive than what we would have seen in years past. These fires are starting, some of them are starting naturally, some of them are starting from people, some of them are starting from electrical lines, correct? Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of different Mm -hmm. reasons for it. It's not just like, you know, there's a thunderclap and then all of a sudden there's a big fire. There's a, a multitude of reasons, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. They can be started by a weather front coming through, they can be started by down power lines. We've certainly seen that in California with some of the fires. It's related to the infrastructure for delivering power. As it becomes possible, moving power, moving the power grid underground will alleviate some of that. But that, again, takes time and money to do. For the near term, I think we'll continue to see those kinds of fires from time to time. Who is studying fire? Whose job is it? Treasury did it. <laughs> And now let's talk about your current job and how you did it for Treasury. And now where are you studying it? What's going on and who else is studying it? In terms of studying fire itself with relationship to forestry management, the Forest Service and USDA run a burn lab. They Do they have a, f- a fire science lab in Missoula, Montana? They do some great work there looking at fuel source and how that affects it. They look at things like temperature and humidity, wind speed. They try to understand how fires create their own weather how they create their own winds. They do some really great work at that lab, just in understanding the basics of how these fires happen, how they spread, how they propagate, and all of the range of factors that play a role into how a fire is going to develop over time. In terms of looking at the impact on grapes and wine, I started research program here in 2016. So I came to WSU, to Washington State University, um, in 2016 or in 2015, I did a little bit of work on smoke that fall and then submitted a grant proposal for the next cycle. And that was funded. So from 2016 on, we've been doing research here, um, looking at how wildfires affect grape quality, wine quality. We have kind of, as I call it, a grape to glass program because we start in the vineyard and we do deliberate smoke exposures every year, trying to Look at all the factors that play a role into how smoke affects the grapes. So we look at timing of exposure. We look at fuel source. We look at a whole range of things related to what is the vine response to smoke when we have one of these exposure events. Yeah, I want to get into the detail of that. But I also just I want to talk about are wineries studying this or is it just universities? Who is taking the lead? I guess what I'm trying to get at is you just said that these government agencies on fire do not coordinate locally. That's one big problem. You have the federal government, you have state government, you have local government, and sometimes it doesn't work. So now we have another situation. Sometimes it doesn't. Right. So now we have another situation where now we have wine and fire. So who is responsible for studying this? It seems like the university approach is good because it can benefit all wineries. You're funded by a grant through Washington State University where you are a professor. Right. Like what about somebody else? I mean, this is one of the bigger problems, which we discussed and we talked before about research. Whoever funds the research, unless it is a party like the government, although sometimes that doesn't even work out, but a university, you have also a lot of times bias because they want the results to come out in a certain way sometimes because it's advantageous to them. Sure, so that, that can that's happen. Tough. Yes. Yeah. So, so we started our program here in 2016. After the fires in 2017, we saw programs start at UC Davis mm-hmm. and Oregon State University. 
And so the three major land-grant institutions on the West Coast are all engaged in research into smoke impacts on grape and wine quality. And initially, we had separate programs, each funded by our own industries, but we work together and have for the last several years, coordinating our efforts up and down the West Coast. We have a big grant from USDA, a specialty crop research grant that started a couple of years ago that brought federal money into this. So we have a coordinated research program across the three states. We also saw the development of the Smoke Exposure Task Force, the West Coast Smoke Exposure Task Force, which is a group that involves industry people. So there are representatives from major wineries and from small wineries. There are also people from USDA, some of the risk management folks, and then the three universities to coordinate efforts across the three states in terms of research priorities and keeping track of outcomes from different research projects that are part of this USDA project. So it's pretty sophisticated the way that you have it. It's not just you at Treasury trying to figure out what yeah, yeah. Like, what <laughs> yeah, you're supposed to be doing. We're well past that stage. <laughs> Do the individual wineries still have people working on that or have they just given it all to the universities to take care of? So many of the larger wineries have active research programs as well. And I work with some of them. I know my partners at OSU and at UC Davis do as well. Between our individual efforts with companies that we work with and the West Coast Smoke Exposure Task Force, there's pretty good coordination between what's happening in industry research and what's happening at university level. Congress also allocated funding to USDA to do to start a program in smoke exposure research. We're, I think, in the fourth year of that. And some of the funding that Congress allocates comes to the three universities. Some of it stays with USDA so that the Ag Research Service can develop a program in smoke exposure. So I, I work with a number of USDA scientists, and we have regular meetings with our USDA counterparts and with the three universities and with the task force to keep everybody informed on where, where, where we're making progress, where we need additional resources. It sounds like the most organized government, university, industry effort I've ever heard of. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> it actually works. There's faith yeah. that it can work. All right. So you got into it a little bit, but let's really get into it. So what are the things that you've discovered about fire and the whole grape to glass? Okay. Let's start out with what parts of the grape are affected by the fire and then like what matters? In the growing season, at what part of the growing season will it affect the vines? When will it not affect the vines? Sure. What's the most and the least harmful? And then we can get into things like distance mm -hmm. and weather and, and fires creating their own microsystem. <laughs> and then the terroir of the fire, which is <laughs> crazy. And I didn't ever think about this either, but it matters a lot. So, so give it us does. the whole thing. Yeah. So I think the first thing I would say is in most cases, we're not dealing with with the fire itself in the vineyard. We do have some instances where we have a rangeland fire that burns up to and sometimes into the vineyard rows. But in most of the exposures, the fire is actually some distance away and the smoke just is carried by the wind into the vineyard area. And those smoke events might last anywhere from a few hours to several days. And there are different amounts of smoke. So it does matter how much smoke is there, and it, it matters how long it's there. The parts of the vine that are affected, we know that the leaves take up compounds from the smoke, and so does the fruit. 
And so we think most of what ends up in the fruit is actually there from direct exposure of the berry itself to the smoke. There is some translocation from the leaves to the fruit, but most of, mostly what's in the berry is there from smoke contact with the berries. Does it get into the root so that then it's permanently damaged or is it just a surface bad thing? Does it ruin it for future years or is it just that year? Generally, the impact is just for that year. There, okay, that's good, you know, right? The, the vine definitely takes it up and there is some translocation. So there would be some that gets to the roots, but there's no evidence so far that it has any year over year impact where the smoke from last year is going to come back and affect this this year's crop. There may be some impacts on vine health that result in the vine maybe being a little smaller than it might have been otherwise, but there's not any likelihood that smoke from last year is going to affect directly the crop for this year. So it's a it's a single year. We get smoke this year. It affects this year's crop. Next year is a clean slate. That's great. Yeah. At least yeah. That's that. really helpful. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we've got that going for us, right? So, so it's we, just the berries and the leaves. That's what we really need to think about mostly. And yeah. within the berries, is it the skin? Is it the juice? Is it everything? The only reason I'm asking you is because we're going to talk about the remedies later, and that's sure. going to matter. What's most affected inside of the grape, or is the whole thing just ruined, really? So when you have an exposure, the compounds from the smoke end up inside the skin pretty quickly. They're adsorbed, taken into the skin. They're in the cells in the skin. So generally speaking, you can't just go in and wash it off. Does it matter how thick the skin is? Um, it doesn't seem to make a big deal of difference, we think. That being said, there are differences in grape varieties in terms of how susceptible they are. There are some varieties that from the same smoke exposure will take up more smoke compounds than other varieties do. And there are some varieties that when they get exposed, it's easier to tell that they've been exposed by the way they smell and taste than for other varieties. In other words, there are some varieties. So Oregon is hosed because Pinot and Chardonnay, Pinot's got the thinnest skin there is probably, yeah, right? I mean, that's yeah, just, Pinot, that's tough. <laughs> Pinot is unfortunately one of the ones that seems to be more readily affected than others. But other varieties can take a fair amount of smoke and they don't necessarily have the same negative outcome. Mm -hmm. So it, there is some varietal susceptibility in terms of what they take up and how readily they express the smoke taint when you turn it into wine. There's definitely differences there. In terms of timing, some of the early work out of Australia suggested that from right at the start of verasion, so the beginning of ripening through harvest, that's where the risk was greater, particularly in the first seven to 10 days after the onset of ripening was the biggest risk. We've looked at it multiple years. And at least here, we see if you've got fruit on the vine, so once you're past bloom and the berries are set, you have the risk of smoke exposure. So we've done deliberate exposures from right at fruit set through harvest, and we can get smoke taint from any of our exposure events. Now, we do apply a fair amount of smoke, but we've had natural events that also applied more smoke than what we have. So it's, you know, we're not doing like a super heavy smoke load. And of course, it's going to be affected. Our levels are, you know, reasonable compared to what we see in natural events. But we do see smoke taint, you know, we see that negative impact coming from exposures as early as the end of June for our area, which is right after fruit set. What's really unfortunate is that the fires tend to happen in August and September, which is right when 
stuff is ready yeah. to come off the vine. So maybe the Sauvignon Blanc and the Chardonnay might be spared if you pick early, but everything else is just, it's yeah. right in that crucible of veraison and ripening for California, especially, and Washington State as well. Oregon's a little bit later, but still yeah. the damage has already been done at that point. In recent years, we've seen the fire season starting a little bit sooner, but yes, generally most of the fires that have big impacts come later in the season. So August, September, even into October can be some of the most damaging fires. But that's not really because of vine susceptibility. It's just that's when the fires are happening. It's bad luck. It's just yeah. pure bad timing yeah. and bad luck. It's hot then. I hope that you ordered a ton of wine when Wine Access had its Black Friday special. I gave you a bunch of things on social media and on Patreon to look at. So hopefully you popped onto my page and ordered some of those wines. The Cune Rioja Bareker and the Gassier Costier de Nîmes. These wines are just spectacular, just like everything Wine Access offers. Also, don't forget Wine Access gift cards. It's like getting someone a gift of a wine store where all the bad wines have been taken out and you can't make a bad choice. Who could ask for more? That's basically what wine access is. And the wine is delivered right to your door. So no hassle. Just go online and pick them out. Free shipping with $150 purchase, which is a great deal. You have a month to get to that $150 shipping threshold. The other thing is their customer service is second to none. I recently heard some horror stories about competitors of wine access. So this is actually really essential. They have a never settle guarantee. Look, stuff happens in the shipping, but they will always credit you for the price of the bottle if something goes wrong. And if you don't like the bottle, they'll also give you a credit for a new one. That is really, really important, especially when you are dealing with wine over the internet. So check it out today. Go to wineaccess.com slash normal and get on the wine club for next year. For less than $200, you get six amazing bottles. I pick out all of the wines that I work with Wine Access to do the videos, write the notes, or go to wineaccess.com slash WFMP and check out that page of my picks. Some really amazing wines on there. I think you're going to love them. Also, don't forget the Sparkling Wine Classes live on wineforNormalPeople.com slash classes. That is a fantastic class offered every year. It is live on the site. It is offered on December 30th, and I'll be posting a couple more for January in case you want to plan ahead. Wineornormalpeople.com slash classes. And don't forget Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash wine for normal people to become a member of the community. There are people from all over the world, from Brazil, from Mexico, from Germany, from the UK, from Australia, from New Zealand. We have a small, tight-knit community. We would love for you to be a part of it. Patreon.com slash wine for normal people. Now let's get back to the show. So how close from a distance perspective does it have to be to affect grapes? I'll give you a reason why I'm asking this. There were the fires in Bordeaux mm -hmm. in the Landes forest. Mm -hmm. And I got a million notes from people saying, oh my gosh, I read that the city of Bordeaux is highly affected by all of this. But if you've been to the Maydoc, you know that there's mm -hmm. a lot of distance between that forest yeah. and there's a lot of distance even between the city of Bordeaux and Margot, which is the most southern commune. And obviously none of those wineries was affected except the ones that were a little bit farther away from the city of Bordeaux mm -hmm. in the opposite direction. So I guess it would be east of Bordeaux, southeast of Bordeaux. So yeah. 
it does matter how far it is. And I think we all have to be cognizant that when we read this in the mainstream press or even sometimes in the wine press, they are getting it wrong and you have to pay attention to other factors. What are those factors so that when we see these sensationalized reports, which I know you read too and think, oh my gosh, you kidding me? When can we shake our heads? So I think we we have a reasonable understanding that the worst events are the ones where you get a fire that burns up to the edge of the vineyard. Right. And thankfully, those are not that common, although they do happen. We saw some of that in 2017. We've certainly seen rangeland fires here that do that. So those are often the worst because the smoke is fresh. You know, it's got its its full impact from being close. What happens with smoke that has to travel is there are, there are several things that happen. The first is there are atmospheric reactions. So any of these smoke-related compounds that are in the gas phase react with other chemicals in the atmosphere and they get broken down. And so they, they're, they're no longer able to cause the kind of damage that they were originally. We also see smoke particles and droplets. So soot particles and droplets that are in the smoke plume drop out over time. So the further the fire, the smoke travels to get to the vineyard, the more you've seen deposit along the way. So there just isn't as much in the smoke plume as there was at the source. So those are kind of the two biggest things. We also see, we've seen instances, 2020 was a good one, where much of the smoke that affected Eastern Washington actually came from California and Oregon. That smoke that if it came from California, it's traveling 700 miles to get here. The plume also went out over the Pacific Ocean. There's a whole suite of other reactions that happen over ocean. Then you get chlorine involved and other things that are in the atmosphere over oceans. By the time that smoke got to us, it didn't have nearly the same impact that it did locally in California or Oregon where those fires were. We had a solid week of smoke in 2020, and most places were not that badly affected in Washington. There were some vineyards that were affected, but in most cases, when you look closely, there were local fires that contributed to the damage. It wasn't this smoke plume from California. Even though it looked terrible and it smelled bad when we were in the middle of it, it didn't have the same impact on the vines that it would have if it had been from fires closer. Does weather matter? Wind or rain? I would assume there must have been some decent amount of wind to bring all of that smoke over to you. Yeah. I mean, it's typically going to follow the wind patterns. And that's actually good for us When we think about forecasting where the smoke is going to go, we can use wind patterns to help us predict where the smoke is going to end up. And so one of the things that we do, and this is a little bit off the current topic, is we work with atmospheric scientists both here at WSU and at UC Davis to develop forecasts for where the smoke plumes will go. Well, let's talk about that now. We can talk about the fire terroir in a second, but being able to forecast, this is a huge part of your research and a huge help in the future if we can make sure that everybody has this information. So what is the sensor program and the forecasting program that you have started to implement? So so there's a couple of components to it. The first is the forecast, the modeling. And you know, the team here here at WSU and also at UC Davis had already been working on models for predicting where smoke would go. And a lot of that was driven by the desire to know where these plumes are going to go, not because they're worried about vineyards, but because they're worried about human health. Right. So they want to be able to forecast what are the areas that are going to be most heavily impacted by a smoke event so that they can tell people stay indoors, people shouldn't be working outdoors, those sorts of things. 
but it's useful for us as well because it helps us predict what vineyards might be affected and it also helps us to know whether our ag workers should be out in the out in the vineyards doing work or not so those those forecasts were out already one of the things that we saw with some of the earlier forecasts is they did a great job of saying there is going to be smoke at this geographic location maybe not as good as forecasting whether it's going to be at ground level or up at three or 4,000 feet where it's not going to have an impact on us. So part of what we've done in response to that, but also these forecasts are built on information that comes from sensors that the state of Washington, the state of California have out in different places. Those sensors, they measure smoke density. Some of them measure what's in the smoke, but they tend to be located in towns because again, it's a human health focused program that put them there in the first place. Which is and completely useless to the wine well, industry, of course. <laughs> right. It's it's very useful if you're trying to predict what part of the population is at risk. Not necessarily that useful for ag because the conditions here are not necessarily the same as they are where the vineyard is. So we have sensors here in Richland, Washington, but that doesn't tell us what the smoke is going to look like 10 or 15 miles away where the vineyards are. And also there's got to be a difference in elevation given what you were talking about. So there could be valley floor vineyards that are not affected and the ones higher up could be or vice versa, right? Exactly. If the air settles at the bottom of the valley, which the valley usually gets the brunt of everything. Yeah. Cold air and smoke settles just like cold air does. And so valley floors tend to be more affected than hillsides. But at the same time, you'll sometimes see just bands of smoke a thousand feet off the valley floor that is affecting the hillside vineyards, but not the ones down at the valley floor. So our goal was to put sensors into commercial vineyards. And we have right now about, I think we've got 21 sensors in different different growing areas, different commercial vineyards in Washington. Similar things are happening in Oregon and California as part of this coordinated effort that would allow us to know what's actually happening in commercial vineyards in terms of smoke density and also things like ozone, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, some of the major gases that we're concerned about inside smoke plumes. And these sensors are all connected to the cloud so that we can see the data in real time, at least when they're all functioning the way they're supposed to. Uh, <laughs> technology. <laughs> technology is never foolproof, but when it nope. works, it's a beautiful thing. Yep. Um, so we can we can start to work with the industry to say these are the areas where the smoke seems to be the biggest problem. These are the areas where maybe the concern is going to be lower. And then this data can all be fed to the researchers who are building these models to help them to help them improve the quality of the data because for two reasons. One, it's more sensors. So the more sensors you have, the better the information can be. And it's also sensors that are in the right places. They're in the vineyards so that they can make models that help us understand what the risks are in commercial vineyards, not just in the towns near commercial vineyards. Before we get into some of the other stuff about remediation and things like that, we're talking a lot about coordinated effort. But you brought up a really great point when we spoke initially, which is that this idea of fire terroir. Because the things that you are studying, the mm-hmm. brushland in Washington is not the same as brushland in Australia. It's not yep. the same as what's, it's not even the same as in Oregon. And it's certainly not the same as what's in California. Yeah. So what burns the terroir of the forest <laughs> is going to make a difference as to what you are going to get 
in sure. the grapes. I thought it was really fascinating. You had mentioned about eucalyptus burning. Yeah. And that's going to make a difference. In Australia, many of the forests are primarily eucalypts. And so the smoke you get from them is going to be different than the smoke we get here, where if it's a forest fire here in Washington, it might be Douglas fir, it might be Western red cedar, hemlock, a few other trees, plus whatever is on the forest floor, understory trees and the pine needles and duff that falls, that gives you one kind of smoke. If you get into rangeland in eastern Washington where we get grass fires, that's going to include 10 or 12 other species that are predominant in this area. You're going to get the same basic compounds, but you're going to get a whole range of other things that are very specific to those kinds of plants and very different from the fuel that you would have in the Cascades or in the Sierra Nevada. Um, so the smoke we get from rabbit brush and from sage is much more potent, much more likely to cause problems than the smoke from, from a forest fire in the Cascades or the Sierra Nevada. It's really interesting. We definitely see a different fingerprint. So we've done work where we've burned all the different plants that are predominant around here and looked at what's in the smoke. And it's a very different fingerprint in that smoke than in smoke from Douglas fir bark or Western red cedar bark or pine needles. What can you do once that stuff starts to affect it? Have you done anything in the vineyard to protect the grapes or is it all stuff in the lab? And once you fix it, does it ruin the wine or can you fix it? I know there's been lots of stuff with spinning cones and separating sure. out the fire compounds and adding charcoal and whatever, whatever else people have tried. I mean, I don't even know, but you can tell me. Sure. We're looking at a couple of approaches here. And the first is in the vineyard. So we're looking at materials. And, and this is, again, a coordinated effort. We have colleagues at OSU and at UC Davis who are also looking at barrier spray materials. These are things that you could apply to, you could just spray in the vineyard before the smoke gets here, or maybe even once the smoke is already here, you could go in and prevent further damage by putting a spray material on. So we've looked at things like kaolin and bentonite, which are clays, and they're, they're highly absorbent. They'll absorb these compounds from the smoke and then keep these compounds from actually getting to the berry surface and getting inside the fruit. One of the keys to the use of these is that you actually have to wash them off before you try to make wine from that fruit because they'll they'll suck these compounds out of the smoke, but if you leave it if you leave the kaolin with these compounds on the berry surface, then when you make wine, those things just get released into the wine. Ugh, they use bentonite clay to filter yeah, wine. Exactly. So it's exactly. the same thing. It's is that how the idea came about? They were saying, well, this is how you get particulate matter out of wine. So why not try applying it onto the grapes? It makes perfect sense to me. Well, so actually one of the one of the reasons we went to look at bentonite is bentonite is used by the wine industry. I mean, it's used for a variety of reasons, but one of the things is if you want to test if your cellar has TCA, so the compound oh, wow. that causes cork taint, right? You set out trays of bentonite in the winery over the weekend, and you just let it collect whatever's in the atmosphere. And then you send it off to get tested. And if there's TCA in the bentonite, then you know you have TCA in your winery. I think some people do not know that TCA actually is more insidious. It doesn't just come on a cork shipment. It exactly. lives on the walls. It lives in the pallets. Of, yep. And it's so insidious. Once it gets in, it's very difficult to get 
out. Yeah. So I think it's a misnomer. A lot of people think that it's just within the cork and it's within your bottle. Yeah. That is not true. It's so much worse than that. Oh, it, it can be in your barrels. It's it, it's in your cellar drains. <sighs> but if it is in your cellar drains, then you'll end up with TCA in the atmosphere, which can go around and and end up in your barrels, end up in your wine. So it's important to know if it's in your cellar. Little trays of bentonite are one of the primary tools that people use for monitoring whether or not they have TCA. So cool. So taking that taking that, and adapting it for the vineyard, we make a slurry of bentonite, we spray it in the vineyard and let it adsorb these compounds, the smoke-related compounds from the smoke plume. What's the efficacy on that? Does it really block it or is it well, just you know 10 percent 20 what or is it depending we, on how bad it is we it, it would depend on how bad it is and when you put it on relative to when the fire started but when we apply it a day before the fire and then or before we do our smoke exposures and then we wash it off after we're done so we'll go back in with a sprayer and just wash the bent night off we've seen a reduction of 40 to 50 percent in the amount of guaiacol, 4-methylguaiacol, and the other marker compounds. So, that's awesome. Yeah. In some cases, that could take you from fruit that's going to make affected wine to fruit that you're not going to see the impact. In either case, it's going to help you downstream because it's that much less you have to take out using reverse osmosis or one of the other techniques. What are the other techniques once you get it in the lab? Is there much you can do? So in the winery, the most widely used technique right now is reverse osmosis. And in that case, you're running it through a very tight filter that creates what's known as a permeate. It's everything that passes through this filter, including the smoke compounds. And then you use carbon or another adsorptive material to remove the the smoke-related compounds. So that's the most widely used technique. It's great for removing what's known as the free glycol or the free 4-methyl glycol, which is the stuff you actually smell. Right. The problem is that these compounds are also present as what's known as glycosides, so the compound plus a sugar, and it doesn't remove those. The problem with that is when we go to taste the wine, we have enzymes in our mouth that can take that sugar off, and then we get the aroma when we're tasting it. The other thing is over time, the sugar can be cleaved by the acids that are present in the wine. And so you can clean the wine up with reverse osmosis, remove guaiacol, 4-methylguaiacol. But then over time, as hydrolysis happens, some of it will come back. And so... They use reverse osmosis to de-alk wines too, right? To take the alcohol. A version of it, yes. Yes, they do. They do. But one of the criticisms about that is that it also strips flavor, which I guess is exactly what you're saying. It strips flavor in a positive way if you're trying to control for this fire thing in the de-alked wines that are just doing it because the grapes are too ripe and they don't want they don't want that percentage on the bottle it's taking out flavor that you do want yes and it it unfortunately does in the when you use it to remove smoke compounds as well yes you're taking the wine from something that has a smoky aroma that you're not really going to be able to do anything with to a wine that doesn't have the smoky aroma but the technique also removes it's not selective so it removes some of the good compounds we're trying to keep as well and so the wine is not going to have the same character it would have had if you hadn't treated it to remove the smoke. Those wines taste horribly bitter also sometimes. Is that the reaction of our, yeah, that's, yeah, that's bitter, what you're talking bitterness, about. Like, bitterness really is, bitter. Yeah, bitterness is, is common in smoke-affected wines. You'll often get this bitterness in the finish. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, smoke taint shows itself in a variety of ways. There are some wines that are obvious. They just smell like smoke. They smell like cigarette smoke or they smell like a fire and they're, they're not pleasant. Hopefully very few of those wines ever actually make it to the marketplace that the wineries do a good job of screening those wines out. Some of them can be treated with RO or with carbon to remove these things, to clean them up. Some of them can't, and they just end up being distilled or discarded in some other way. The other thing to keep in mind is even in areas where there has been smoke, even in some of the worst years, there are going to be good wines that come from those areas. Not every wine is affected in the same way. Which vineyards get affected? Even in a a region where there has been smoke, there will be some vineyards that are affected and there'll be some vineyards that are not that badly affected. It's all the terroir, the fire terroir. We get into yeah, a different yeah. level of fire terroir, which is where did it spread? Where was the wind? How, where was it? Yeah. Was it downstream, upstream? Was it in the valley? Was it on the, you know I mean? Yeah. It's all the things that we talked about. And I think this is where winemaker trust comes in. You have right. to trust that the winery made a good decision before you buy those, but you can't write off a vintage wholesale. And you exactly. also really, really, really need to be careful. You need to do your own digging because mm-hmm. again, the wine press or the mainstream press will say the entire vintage is ruined. They will say that and they will say it over and over and over again. I can't say it enough. Once a wine story hits the mainstream press, it has lost so much credibility, then you have, you're going to just got to have to ignore yeah. it. It's just, yeah. it's just the fact when we read, we being industry people, when we read stuff in the mainstream press and CNN and Bloomberg and not the wine part of Bloomberg, New York times, it's like, well, you missed like 10 steps before you got to that <laughs> sensational headline. Sometimes the yeah. wine press gets it wrong too. But usually if you yeah. see a story like that, you need to go dig into the wine trade to see actually what happened and make right. sure that you contact your producer, which, which brings me to another question. We're talking about all these remediations. They're fantastic. Who can afford them, though? Who can afford the bentonite sprays? Who can afford the sensors? Is it just the big wineries that are getting access to this? Are small wineries going to be able to afford it? Is it the responsibility of government? Is it only the treasuries of the world and Chateau St. Michel's that are going to have access to this because it's just too expensive? Or can my small producer friends in Walla Walla afford this? Well, I I think... When we, when we talk about barrier sprays, we've looked at these clay materials. And part of the reason we looked at them is, one, kaolin's already registered for use in vineyards. Bentonite is something everybody's familiar with, and it wouldn't be that hard to get it registered if it was effective. And these are materials that are relatively low cost. You know, the major cost actually for putting these on is just the cost of applying them, the labor and the fuel and the tractor time to go in and spray it. And then, unlike other pesticides you might apply. This one, you actually have to go back and take off. So right. it's two two trips to avoid the problem at a minimum. So that's where the cost is. And for low cost fruit, it may not make financial sense. It may be better to take the hit and get the crop insurance and move on. For higher value fruit, things that are going to sell for more per ton, it probably will be worth the effort to go through and do the spray. So it's it's not so much big versus small, it's the quality of the fruit. So low cross fruit, it just may not make sense. More expensive tier fruit, you're gonna do what you have to to protect it because it's worth so much. What about the work in, in the winery once it gets in there? That seems like that would be expensive and require specialty skills. You'd have to send that out, right? It would be more expensive. It requires equipment that is a significant capital cost. 
But the larger wineries might invest in that to have it in-house so they can use it when they need to. And the thing is that equipment, the same equipment that you would use to remove smoke compounds could also be used to remove the compounds associated with Britannomyces. It could be used to change the volatile acidity of your wine. It's multi-purpose, so you could use it for other things as well. I'm sure they all already have it because the de-alcohol thing, I mean, yeah. that's the one thing that it's legal in the new world and lots of people use it. They won't tell yeah. you that, but they will use it. Many of them do have it, but the ones who don't, there are any number of commercial services where you can call them up and say, I've got a problem and they'll send their equipment and a team to your winery and they'll do the work there. They might be there depending on how much you have to do. They might be there for a day. They might be there for a week but there are commercial services that can do reverse osmosis for you. How do you get the word out, though, about the sensors in the vineyards and things like that? Again, you know, Washington has so many, we'll just concentrate really on where you are, so many small wineries, and there's 21 sensors. Mm -hmm. So how are those sensors going to multiply? Do the wineries have to pay for them? Will the USDA funding cover some of that? Will WSU's grants? Because it seems to me that forecasting is huge to sure. solving this problem. Can't figure out what to do until you figure out where the fire is. Right. For the current stage, the funding for this has come from the Washington wine industry, from the Washington Wine Commission, and from USDA as part of the research effort. And so the focus is on gathering the data they need to make better forecasts and for us to help us understand how the smoke gets distributed. We've done things like had the sensors out and then collected fruit from several of the vineyards where the sensors are so that we can look at this is what this this is how much smoke the sensor said was in the vineyard. And this is the outcome when we make wine from that fruit so that we can start to correlate smoke density in the vineyard with the outcome in the wine. You know, so at this point, it's still a research tool. Where I would envision it going is sort of like our ag weather net system, where we have weather, sense, weather stations in vineyards all over the state. And it's managed by WSU, it's managed through grants, and it has a forecast that goes out to anybody that subscribes to it that says, this is the weather you can expect in your vineyard for the next 24 to 48 hours. So I, I see that same kind of model where you would have sensors in lots of vineyards. There would be an entity here that manages the, all that data and makes it available to anybody that's subscribed to it or that wants to go to the site and download the data for the nearest sensor to their own vineyard. It's such a practical approach, what you're doing. I mean, it really is very inclusive. And I love that. I love that this is why I think it's important that universities take on a lot of the research in wine because you're not thinking about, oh, well, what's commercially advantageous mm -hmm. as much as what is going to help the industry overall right. versus no offense to your first job where you were just thinking about what can we do for Treasury's vineyards. Sure. This is much more altruistic. I'm sure that's why you're very happy where you are. As our final question, are there any international developments as we're following news on this topic as we're looking at it, what should we be looking for? What are you excited about in the research coming up here? One of the things that came out in the last year or so was the development. And we worked with the team at Oregon State to really identify another group of compounds involved in smoke. So we've been focused on guaiacol and 4-methylguaiacol and other volatile phenols. This goes back to the early research from Australia that found these this class of compounds, and they're compounds that come from smoke. If you look at smoke, 
Glycol is always there. Formethylglycol is always there. Cresols, all these things are always there. But we've identified another class that's closely related, same compounds, but instead of, instead of having an oxygen that makes a phenol, it's actually got a sulfur atom instead. So it becomes a thio. We think these are things that the plant is actually making from the phenols. They're putting a sulfur on instead of the oxygen that was there. The key thing is it makes that compound much more volatile. So it takes a lot less of it to have an impact. And it looks like you actually have to have both the phenols, the guaiacol, et cetera, and the thiophenols as well. So you have to have both. They work together to give you the smoky character. If you just have guaiacol, it smells sort of medicinal. If you just have the thioguaiacol, it smells vegetal. But you right. put the two together in the right ratios and it smells smoky. Because we, for a while, have had this issue where we have wines that have relatively high amounts of guaiacol and formethylguaiacol, and they don't smell smoky. They smell medicinal. And then we have some that have low levels of guaiacol but still smell smoky. And so it comes down to you need both types to really make the impact that we call smoke taint or we see as an outcome of smoke exposure. So I look to see more research into that area and trying to understand how these are made, what roles they play. We've done some initial work that show you kind of have to have both, but there's a lot of work still to be done about how much of each do you need. If you have different ratios of the two, do you get different outcomes? So there's a there's a whole new area there to, that I know people are working in, we're working in, and so are our colleagues. So that's an interesting area. And then I think the other thing you'll see is new approaches for removing smoke from wine. Okay. So so things that are more selective in removing just the smoke-related compounds, things that are more targeted. Rather than just the reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis yeah. with a carbon bed to remove the compounds, it's going to remove other things. But if we have things that are more selective in removing just the glycols or just the phenols, then I think you'll see less collateral damage to the other aroma compounds. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to we're going to see big strides in that area over the next two or three years as the industry and our suppliers have mobilized to find these kinds of materials that are more selective. Well, and I do hope that the sensor program does exactly what you're talking about and that the solutions in the vineyard, which would be, seems to me, that's the easiest and the least invasive, right? Yes. It would be the thing to just protect the plant so that you don't have to do all this stuff in the winery, especially again, for smaller wineries who just can't do the technology. I think I, I really hope that yeah. you're able to get that out and, and people are able to use that. Well, this yeah. is just so fascinating. I could talk to you all day about this. It's really, really cool. I told you I'm coming to your burn house. <laughs> yeah, point. absolutely. I Let's, love it. I love the idea. I'll let you know when we're, when we're planning our exposures for next summer and coming out and see what we're doing. Oh, that would be so cool. That would be so awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You're such a, an amazing source of knowledge for this. I hope you'll come on again when you have more developments. This was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm glad you made the invitation and we had a chance to chat today. This, as I, as I predicted, has been a lot of fun. Good. Well, thank you so much. And with that, this has been another episode of Wine for Normal People. Thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time. 